these are taken from the message and the message is displayed on, the, on there too. So if some words look slightly different because um, we're not using the nearly infallible version, it's because we're using the message. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pulled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful, as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. And now the second one, starting at verse 6. We, of course, have plenty of wisdom to pass on to you once you get your feet on firm spiritual ground. But it's not popular wisdom, the fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so. God's wisdom is something mysterious that goes deep into the interior of his purposes. You don't find it lying around on the surface. It's not the latest message, but more like the oldest. What God determined as the way to bring out his best in us long before we ever arrived on the scene. The experts of our day haven't a clue about what this eternal plan is. If they had, they wouldn't have killed the master of the God-designed life on the cross. That's why we have this scripture text. No one's ever seen or heard anything like this. Never so much as imagined anything quite like it. What God has arranged for those who love him. But you've seen it and heard it because God, by his spirit, has brought it all out into the open before you. The spirit, not content to flit around on the surface, dives into the depths of God and brings out what God planned all along. Whoever knows what you're thinking and planning except you, yourself. The same with God. Except that he not only knows what he's thinking, but he lets us in on it. God offers a full report on the gifts of life and salvation that he is giving us. We don't have to rely on the world's guesses and opinions. We didn't learn this by reading books or going to school. We learned it from God, who taught us person to person through Jesus. And we're passing it on to you in the same first-hand personal way. The unspiritual self, just as it, it is by nature, can't receive the gifts of God's spirit. There's no capacity for them. They seem like so much silliness. <coughs> spirit can only be known by spirit. God's spirit and our spirits in open communion. 
spiritually alive, we have access to everything God's Spirit is doing and can't be judged by unspiritual critics. Isaiah's question, is there anyone around who knows God's Spirit, anyone who knows what he is doing, has been answered. Christ knows, and we have Christ's Spirit. So, before I start um, saying a few words about that, can we just pray? O oh Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. Amen. So, I thought we'd look at the value of working together for a brief moment, which does tie in with a point I will make a bit later on. So, let's see. Will the PowerPoint technology work? A few light bulb questions. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Anybody got any idea? No, because they only use candles. Let's try another one. How many Anglicans does it take to change a light bulb? Any offerings? Ten. One to change the bulb and nine to say how much they actually like the old one. And especially for Tim, how many brethren does it take to change a light bulb? Change. Correct. Change? <laughs> how many Mormons does it take to change a light bulb? Five. One man to change it and four wives to tell him how to do it. And finally, if we're taking a knock at everybody, we'll have to take a knock ourselves. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Five. One to change the bulb and four to serve refreshments. <laughs> so, last time I spoke, I looked at the four facets of the Holy Spirit's role. And they, I summarise them as the three G's. He's our guide and teacher. He gives us spiritual gifts. He empowers us to proclaim and he guarantees our hope in heaven. So we shorten that to three G's. Guides, gives, guarantees. But tonight I want to look at a few more. First of all, he's a uniter. 
The book of Acts tells us that after the first disciples were baptised in the Holy Spirit, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The Greek word used for fellowship is koinonia. And here it appears for the first time in the Bible and then it's used 18 times throughout the New Testament. Now I've got a little example on a video clip, which we will hope will work, of um, a little team who are not working together, and I just thought it would be a, uh, a little point to share with you. There isn't any sound, unfortunately, but all it is is our birds singing, so we're not losing too much by not having the sound. Thank you. Now, clearly those uh, birds were not putting into practice koinonia. They were not being partnership, a partnership with that particular strange bird that turned up. 
Now, koinonia is a supernatural grace that causes Christians to love one another deeply. Now, those little birds were definitely not loving that large bird at all. It wasn't possible before Pentecost because it is a manifestation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Spirit's dunamis power enables us to heal the sick or work miracles, his koinonia knits our hearts and binds us together. After the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2, koinonia caused the early disciples to share their possessions unselfishly and to share meals often. Many people decided to become Christians when they witnessed this loving community. Koinonia was an essential ingredient in the New Testament church. It is what connected Paul, Timothy, Luke, Titus, Priscilla and Aquila as a team. It is what held the early Christians together in the face of persecution and caused them to lay down their lives for one another. Now, light bulb jokes aside, and little bird cartoons aside, I think in our church we do pretty well on this front. But we shouldn't become complacent. The local community out there is watching. Now this can attract people to our church just as it did in the early church because they see what we've got and they say we want what they've got. But it can be just as easy to repel people if they see things are not as they should be and we're not loving each other as we should. So if we suddenly treated a different person who came into church one morning or evening, like those birds treated the larger bird, then that is definitely not showing the right attitude. If we have us and them factions, like, oh, well... We don't mix with the band. They're far too hoity-toity. <laughs> or if we have some unresolved arguments, that is not the right attitude. So we need to constantly invite the Holy Spirit to do his work of connecting us with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that was the first point. He's a uniter. Secondly, he's our intercessor. This is one of the greatest miracles of grace. The Apostle Paul told us that the Holy Spirit, who lives inside us, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And that's taken from Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays the perfect will of God. No matter what kind of dark difficulty we face, 
the spirit travails for us until we emerge safely through the test. So, have you ever groaned in prayer? Most of us know the feeling. We may not feel full of faith when we utter our deepest cries to God. We could be going through a difficult struggle and not feeling very spiritual. We may not even be able to muster the strength to pray for half an hour. Now, that's definitely me. Hungry meetings can be quite a challenge sometimes because they're an hour and we're expected to pray for an hour. And sometimes my prayers are short phrases like, help me, God, or I'm not sure how much longer I can carry on. That's definitely me. But according to the Bible, these kind of prayers are powerful. All you have to do is read the Psalms of King David to know that God hears prayers, such as, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help. And what is so comforting is that when we feel frustrated in prayer or don't know what to say, the Spirit is praying at a deeper level inside us and he knows what to pray. That is the promise of Romans 8, verse 26. He prays with groanings too deep for words until faith gives birth to the answer we are waiting for. So what can we learn from this? We shouldn't be afraid to pray even when we are uncertain of what we should say because the Holy Spirit will be very eloquent on our behalf. So, my third point is the most important because most of all, the Holy Spirit can change me. He helps me to understand the mind of God. We had that in the um, second reading, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 and 16. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have the mind of Jesus. I believe that this is the key to the Spirit's power in our lives. God's Spirit helps me to understand the mind of God, how God thinks. And if I can understand how God thinks, then I should be able to start thinking that way myself. And then my life will change. And I can even change the world around me. This is such a powerful concept that Albert Einstein once said, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. The beauty for us is that the spirit is like a direct line between God and us. We are literally tapped into God through his spirit. And when we allow ourselves to be immersed in God, if we allow ourselves to be focused on his thoughts, then we can do powerful things in this world. When you tap into the mind of God, you can accomplish great things for God. 
You can change your life. You can change your family. You can change your workplace. You can even change the world around you. But first, you need to think like God. And that is one of the most significant things the Spirit does for us. Now, as God's Spirit takes over my thinking, several things happen. First, my priorities change. Before I became a Christian, it was all about me. I did what I did because I wanted to. My morals were my morals. My goals were my goals. I made my decisions based on what I felt was best. But now, things have changed. One author put it this way. The natural man lives as if there was nothing beyond the physical life and there were no needs other than his material needs. Such a person thinks that nothing is more important than the satisfaction of the sex urge and thus cannot understand the meaning of moral purity. One who believes collecting material things is the supreme aim of life can't understand generosity. And one who has never thought beyond this world cannot understand the things of God. God's Spirit constantly reminds us that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to God. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. And because we now belong to God, his Spirit expects to make changes in our lives. Now, sometimes the change he makes in us is dramatic. I've met people who've come out of alcoholism, drug abuse, and other disastrous lifestyles when they became Christians. Some share their stories at men's breakfasts. That's another story, how I managed to be at a men's breakfast. Remember Graham Seed? He came to visit us a little while ago, um, about seven years ago. He was a violent criminal and had spent more time inside prison than out. But now he's going into prison, sharing his story in the hope that prisoners inside will turn to God. It was like the wickedness of his life had simply gone away and he'd received a different personality. More often, though, the change in our lives is far more subtle. In fact, it can be so subtle that we don't even know that it's happening. But this is the key. I don't become a better person because I'm a superior individual. I become a better person because God's Spirit is a superior influence in my life. So, we've looked at 
three further roles of the Holy Spirit this evening. Uniter, intercessor and changer. With the last one being, I think, the most important of all the seven which I have considered over this sermon and the previous one. Some of you are familiar with wordles. If it works, there we go. There's a wordle about the Holy Spirit. The question for us to ask today is not how much of the Holy Spirit do I have, but how much of me does the Holy Spirit have? So, let us pray. Dear Lord, help us through your Spirit to love each other more deeply to possess this koinonia which will bind us together as a Christian community more strongly. Thank you for sending us the intercessor who helps us to pray even when we are lost for words ourselves. In our darkest hours, your spirit is there praying at a deeper level inside us. We thank you. Thank you for sending your spirit to change us. You thought we were worth the effort, that we weren't beyond redemption or too insignificant to bother about. We are so thankful that we belong to you. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to suffer in our place and that through your grace we are your sons and daughters. We are reminded of your son's sacrifice at the communion table. It is difficult to express the extent of our gratitude. As we come to this table, we confess any wrongdoing for any unkind thoughts, words, deeds which have caused division, particularly amongst our Christian community. We are deeply sorry. Through you, Father, we can have a fresh start. In Jesus' name, Amen. Right, I'd like to invite the band back up.